The notion of terror nullius was a, a monstrous, slanderous nonsense used to justify perhaps the biggest land grab in human history. And there is so much evidence for its absurdity, including the Aboriginal rock art, much of it incredibly old, that can be found pretty much all over Australia. The evidence of First Nations people leaving their impressions of stories and culture on the landscape has long since fascinated white invaders. In fact, Indigenous rock art was first recorded by Matthew Flinders and his onboard artist, William Westall, at Chasm Island in January 1803, when they were busy circumnavigating Australia. But whilst the presence of Aboriginal artists was clearly known, many of their names have not been, at least by white folk. And now we have to, of course, include the vast amounts of dazzling bark paintings. The team at Rock Art Heritage Unit are trying to change this anonymity by laboriously combing through old records and constructing genealogies to match work held in our museums to the specific artists who painted them in the hope of finally giving them the recognition they deserve. And they've now identified the works of a previously unknown Australian painter whose work hangs in museums from Melbourne to Paris. Here to tell us this extraordinary story is Paul Taisson. Paul is Distinguished Professor and Chair in Rock Art Research and Director of the Place, Evolution and Rock Art Heritage Unit at Griffith Uni. And Paul, I'm shocked to recall that you were last chatting to me back in 1996. I know, it's so long ago, but it seems like yesterday to me. Well, welcome back to the Little Wireless program. Before we reveal the name of the artist you've traced, perhaps you can quickly t tell us about the work of the Rock Art Heritage Unit. We study rock art, rock paintings, engravings, stencils, prints, and so forth, right across Australia uh, and throughout Southeast Asia and beyond. We in Australia, work very closely with Aboriginal community members, both young and old, to study their heritage in partnership with them. Uh, and we also give them lots of management advice so that uh, they can better look after their, their priceless rock art heritage for future generations. And you also employ quite modern technologies like DNA studies. Uh, we get involved in DNA studies. We use drones and um, laser scanners, uh, lots of different toys. I've spent a life travelling the world looking at rock art from Altamira to the Drakensbergs, but I had no idea that there were so many rock art sites right here in Australia. It's thought that Australia has more rock art sites than any other country in the world, at least 100,000. And the amazing thing is, every year, not only my teams, but other teams from other universities or Aboriginal community um, research teams themselves, find hundreds of previously undocumented sites. So there's still a lot more out there to be found. And of course, many of them are under threat from mining, from population growth and even impact of climate change, as we've heard on uh, Eleanor before. 
But tell me about this particular project to match rock and now, yes, bark art, with the names of previously unknown artists. Well, I've been interested in contact period rock art, rock art that was made after the arrival of Asians, Macassans, for instance, uh, in Northern Australia and Europeans, um, with introduced subject matters such as uh, cows, buffalo, horses, vehicles, and so forth. Um, and recently, I and colleagues at uh, the University of Adelaide, the University of Western Australia, uh, have been trying to put names behind the recent rock paintings of Western Arnhem Land. Who made these? And we were able to identify um, a handful of people and, and many of the works that they made in the rock shelters. A couple of years ago, we then decided to do the same thing for the earliest collected bark paintings. And the biggest collection is known as the Spencer Cahill Collection, 163 works, most of which are in the Melbourne Museum. So we've now started to put names to some of those masterpieces as well. Now, you've got to tell me a little bit about Baldwin Spencer and Paddy Cahill who collected so much of this uh, precious artwork. Well, Paddy Cahill, he was a, a real character. He arrived in what was then called Palmerston and later became Darwin in 1891 with a whole lot of horses that he planned to race. But he soon found that big game hunting, hunting was a lot more lucrative. Uh, so he became um, a buffalo shooter and um, over the course of... Um, a couple of decades, uh, is said to have killed 15,000 buffalo. These are water buffalo uh, introduced from Southeast Asia. But and when he wasn't shooting buffaloes, he was becoming more and more enchanted by Aboriginal culture. He certainly was. And he established a settlement that he called On Pelly in 1911, uh, just to the east of the East Alligator River that divides Kakadu and Arnhem Land today. And um, there, Aboriginal people were intrigued by uh, him and his family and everything they had to offer. And at any one time, there was 50 to 250 people camped there. Um, he put many of them to work. Um, he had a small agriculture business that he established, and many of them worked on that. But also, um, many uh, of the men, Aboriginal men, became buffalo shooters like Paddy himself. But he, he, look, he's so interesting. He develops this deep interest in Aboriginal people, learning languages, being careful to use tribal names. And he sought to minimize contact with Europeans, didn't he? Particularly and I would have thought very wisely, with missionaries. Uh, indeed, he did. However, he did have visitors at Onpelly who also were very interested in the local Aboriginal community members, as well as the rock paintings in the galleries, the rock shelters near Onpelly itself. And, of course, Sir Baldwin Spencer made movies, recorded wax cylinders and took oodles of photographs. Yeah, he was quite a, a remarkable person as well. Um, he was Foundation Professor of Biology in Melbourne and Director of um, the then National Museum of Victoria. But he had a, a very strong interest in Australian Aboriginal art and Aboriginal culture in general. So he travelled around 
Australia, especially spending a lot of time in the Northern Territory. And in 1912, he stayed with Cahill at Onpelly for two months, recording as much as he could about all of the Aboriginal people that he came into contact with. Now, there are six artworks held in the Melbourne Museum you've closely examined that share very distinctive features. That's correct. Uh, for instance, uh, the Hatch in film that characterizes bark paintings generally is different in these six than the rest of the collection. Um, instead of parallel line hatching of even thickness, uh, these are slightly curving hatch lines of varying thickness. So that's one of the distinguishing features. As well, this particular artist used diamond designs in, on various parts of the bodies of the animals and human-like figures that he painted um, in ways that were different from other artists. He also, um, he also added extra fingers. Occasionally an extra finger on hands um, if... The paintings he made were um, in profile. He showed the eyes on stalks or optic nerves. Um, he had a lot of interesting aspects to his work that meant that we could cluster these six together. Uh, there's also uh, another painting in Paris uh, where they hold four of the Spencer Cahill barks uh, that has the same features. We now know his name was Majumbo. And, uh, well, he, was, he also had a white fellow name, and we'll talk about that a bit later. But are you absolutely convinced that you have identified an artist? I am absolutely convinced, partly because he also made rock paintings, uh, and these were um, recorded in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, with Majumbu's sons who identified the paintings that Majumbu made. Now, one of the paintings is of a huge, almost life-size crocodile. And the largest painting in the Spencer Cahill collection also is a life-size crocodile, and they're almost identical. And the characteristic stylistic features that we've identified uh, are found in both of the crocodiles. Helping you put the pieces of this uh, puzzle together was a story of a boy with an infected leg. Tell us about that. So one of the things I did was I looked at the archives in the Melbourne Museum, the notebooks that Cahill sent down with paintings, and as well as letters between Cahill and Spencer, and then later went through more letters uh, uh, and reports in uh, the Pitt Rivers Museum, uh, which fortunately were published online. And in them, I found frequent reference to this young boy who fell out of a tree and staked his leg. And he was brought in to um, the Onpelly settlement because Cahill ran a clinic there, and Cahill patched him up. But unfortunately, it didn't heal, uh, and he was brought back a couple other times. And there are also some medical reports to the Northern Territory government on file. And in one of these, the boy was named. His name is Nowerwood. And immediately that rang a bell because there was a Frank Nowerwood who um, lived up until the 1980s, and he was Majumbu's son. So this person that 
Cahill was referring to as Old Harry. Uh, and in some cases, he connected Old Harry to a couple of the Bach paintings. Had to be Majumbu. Majumbo and Old Harry. That was the Whitefella name for him. Exactly. Cahill gave Whitefella names to many of the Aboriginal people that he worked with, partly because in some cases he couldn't pronounce their name or in other cases it was just easier. A little over 100 years ago, a journalist, Elsie Masson, described Majumbo or um, or Old Harry as a grey-bearded warrior and a clan patriarch. That's correct. He um, had six wives. It's common or was common in the past in Arnhem Land for men to sometimes have two or three, but he actually had six. So he really stood out in that way. But he was also very tall and uh, majestic, majestic Majumbu. <laughs> um, and he was, he was um, a key ceremony man, a, a clan leader. Amazingly, you found out the Majumbu was related to an Aboriginal colleague that's working with you on the project. Yeah, this was an amazing moment. Kenneth Mangaroo and I have been working together since 1992, documenting rock art. And um, he's a member of the research team for this project. And we went down to the Melbourne Museum in May last year, along with some other community members, looked at all of the bark paintings, and that's when I also went through the archives. Uh, and then when we discovered that there was this man, Old Harry, associated with some of these paintings. His name was Majumbu. It all came together that, in fact, Kenneth is Majumbu's great-grandson. So here, this key member of the research team actually is the great-grandson of this artist we've now identified. I have to ask you this. What happened to Majumbu in the end? Um, he lived to a fairly ripe old age, and um, he was then um, given traditional burial ceremonies. And his um, after the secondary um, burial, his skeletal remains were put in one of the rock shelters with paintings on his traditional clan estate. Wonderful detective work, and I thank you for coming on the program again. You must drop in in another 20 years. I've been talking to uh, Paul Tayson, Distinguished Professor and Chair in Rock Art Research and Director of the Place, Evolution and Rock Art Heritage Unit at Griffith University. And as you've heard, we're not just talking rock art, we're also talking bark. Thanks, Paul. In closing, we should note that Paul and his team told the Melbourne Museum of their discovery of Majumba's name and that along with the Gumbalanya community members, the team relocated his crocodile painting held by the museum back to Majumba's traditional lands and that was in September last year. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.